if someone asked you, you know, what does it mean to be an overcomer, get a picture in your mind. You know, do you think of summiting a mountain? Do you think of, you know, uh, eating a bunch of hot dogs? Like, what does it mean to be an overcomer for you, right? And then the second question is, I would ask, as Christians, how can we be overcomers? And even though this is a Christian school, I don't want to assume that everyone in here is a Christian. In fact, I think that would be kind of foolish. Um, And the reason for that is because, as my mom always says, just because you're in church or just because you're in a Christian school, it doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're in a garage doesn't mean you're a car, right? And some of the guys, and probably the girls too, you guys are weightlifting, right? And you go in the weight room, and if you just stand there and watch everybody else lift weight, you don't really, does anything happen? Honestly, I mean, no, right? You don't get stronger. And it's kind of the same way, right? I mean, you can attend things in church and Christian school, but, you know, that's really not what it's about. It's about the heart. But for those of you who really are Christ followers, um, and that means you've repented and believed the gospel, please think with me very carefully about the following question. So if a friend came to you and said, hey, I want to know how I can overcome X challenge in my life, right? could be anything. But they came to you and they said, hey, you're a Christian. I know you, you follow this guy named Jesus. So I want to know, I'm going through something right now. How can I overcome X in my life? So what would you say to them? Like, just think about it. How would you say, I mean, from your perspective, what's the best way to overcome whatever they're going through? Um, and you may, you probably have that happen in your life. You know, life kind of is very hard at times, right? And I think some people, if they're Christians, they would say, well, what you need to do is just become a Christian, and then your life will automatically be perfect. Maybe some people have told that to you, right? And many people actually think that the gospel is come to Jesus, and you will find joy, peace, lasting happiness, success. Your life will get better, and you'll become the healthiest, happiest version of yourself possible, right? Have you guys ever heard that sort of type of message preached? I think it's out there, definitely. God will give you all the stuff you want, all the money you need. Just trust Jesus and you'll have a wonderful life, right? And some people say that. Now, don't get me wrong. Trusting Jesus is awesome, and it's the only way to go, but it doesn't guarantee a happy life, right? Um, And we know that, hopefully, from personal experience. You know, we know that. And just looking around, right? Every Christian. I don't know if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, but that ends in a lot of lives that aren't the American dream. Every single one of those people was martyred a lot of times in horrible ways for their faith, right? So, I mean, what? Was God not in their lives? Right? So I don't think that that's really what Christianity is about. But Scripture never says our lives will get easier when we come to Jesus. In fact, it says the opposite. Leonard Ravenhill is a famous evangelist. He's kind of a, one of the guys that I like to listen to. And he said that Jesus promises us only two things. So there's two promises that Jesus gives us in our lives okay, that we can cling to. He says an eternal salvation in which to hope and a cross on which to die. Two things, right? So not the American dream, but... I think I would argue it's all that's important. In John 16:33, Jesus actually guaranteed that we'll have trouble. And my dad loves to quote that verse. He actually guaranteed it, right? It's not a question of if. You know, so if you're like, hey, you know, I hope my life never gets hard. I hope I never have to go through some of the things that other people are going through. I hope I never have to face challenges. I mean, the fact is, you will, right? It's going to happen. And I think some of you guys are probably, it's happening right now for you, Right? Like, there are some of you who are going through really tough things, and that kind of is hard. And for the rest of you guys who you think life's going pretty good, it's up and up, you know, things are great, honestly, like, it's it's not going to stay that way. The the trouble is going to come for you. And But Jesus did talk about trouble, and what kind of trouble, I think, the question, what kind of trouble is he talking about, right? 
he can't be talking about the big stuff. You know, the stuff that keeps you up at night. He's probably only talking about first world problems. Do you guys know what I mean when I say first world problems? Like, let's see, maybe an extra pump of caramel in your latte at Starbucks or the laptop cord doesn't reach the outlet, right? First world problems, you know. You know, your, your laptop battery dies, you can't check your Twitter, kind of stinks. But maybe what about when the guy or girl you've had a crush on for like two whole weeks? Like, this is big time. And then they friend zone you. <laughs> it's the worst. Come on, ladies. Come on. Um, has that happened to any of you guys, by the way? Because it's happened to me, and it is no fun, girls. So the friend zone, not the best place to end up. Um, no, but I actually think uh, it's different than that. I think what Jesus is talking about is the really big stuff. Uh, like maybe when you work your entire high school to career to become the best basketball player you can be, and then an injury puts you out for your senior year. Everything you've worked for, gone. I think it could be when a relationship that was your everything suddenly ends, and you are kind of lost. You don't know what to do. That was everything in your life, right? Uh, what about when you feel so anxious, so alone, or so depressed that the only way you can escape is by hurting yourself, or so you think? That's a thing, Right? I think Jesus is talking about that. Maybe when you mess up, when you don't, you feel like there's no coming back from something you've done, something terrible. You feel like, is how can I possibly come back from this? I don't know if anyone can relate. I think I can. Um, what about when someone you love gets really, really sick or dies? Um, that stuff happens in life. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you know that. Um, and the, the thing really is, it's not if, it's when for you guys. Um, and this is what we want to talk about being overcomers, right? Because the stuff's going to happen. Um, and some of you, like I said, are going through this right now, and you're in a tough place, and the rest of you guys, it's going to happen for you too. Um, and so the question really is, what do we do in those times, and where do we turn in the toughest times in life? Um, that's what I want to get at today. So we're going to dive into Scripture um, in a second here, and I'd actually like to get a volunteer. So, but before we do that, I want to pray, and then we'll go ahead and read the passage. Father, thank you so much for today um, and just your grace in giving us a chance to wake up this morning and breathe. Um, your mercies are new every morning, and um, it's just our privilege to get together and open the word. Um, I ask that you'd speak through me um, and that your word will remain um, etched in these students' hearts and anything I say uh, that is just from me, Lord, would it pass away and um, would it be blown away just like chaff, but would your word uh, would your word remain? And I pray that there would be fruit um, and that your word would not return void this morning. Uh, just ask that you'd give us uh, attentiveness since it's kind of early, and I ask for um, just that you would open hearts, Lord. Um, open hearts to the gospel and just uh, encourage people and restore uh, people today. In Jesus' name, amen. So could I get a guy potentially to come up and read Hebrews chapter 4, 12 through 16 for me? Who's, uh, who's going to step up, man? Yes. Okay, cool. I've got my Bible if you just want to read it out of here. What's your name? Juan. Juan. Okay, thank you. Thanks for coming up. <laughs> uh, hold on one second. Um, okay, everybody, who's, is there pages flipping? Is everybody at Hebrews 4, 12 through 16? Good. Um, okay, we'll have you read that, and that'd be great. Thanks, Juan. 12 through 16, so you have to flip the page. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed to the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet, without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right. Thanks, Juan. Appreciate it. Awesome. Okay, before we jump in here, I want to give some background. Um, I'm going to have three points for you. But the book of Hebrews uh, right now is actually my favorite book of the Bible. How many of you have actually read Hebrews before? Okay, awesome. Some people out there. It's great. It's the bridge between the Old and New Covenant, so the Old and New Testament. I think it's the best way, if you read Hebrews and understand it, you're going to get a great understanding of the Old Testament and what's going on there. It quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. It's awesome. It was written to a congregation of Jews, which is, I think, one of the reasons that it does that. It's incredible for many reasons, but here's some background. I just want to, I want to, honestly, I want to set the stage for us this morning. So Hebrews is a New Testament letter or sermon. One of the only books in the New Testament actually where the author is unknown. It's kind of an interesting deal. Um, But of course, we know the primary author is the Holy Spirit. Um, That's pretty important to understand. How many of you guys use Spark Notes? Don't raise your hand. Don't use it. Okay, but Cliff Notes, do you guys, do you know what I'm talking about at least when I say that? It's like in English class when you're supposed to read the entire Tale of Two Cities book, and you're like, eh, I'm going to go online and read the synopsis, okay? That's, that's what SparkNotes is. Um, and I have SparkNotes for you for the book of Hebrews, except it's like really short. So you're going to be able to, from now on, you'll be able to understand Hebrews' SparkNotes version. Um, here we go. So one sentence, actually. Jesus is better and don't coast, okay? Jesus is better and don't coast. That's your SparkNotes for Hebrews. If you want to write that down, um, you'll see those themes running through Hebrews. Um, the whole book, actually, and we're going to see it in our passage today. Um, so the Jewish Christians in the congregation of Hebrews uh, were actually kind of tempted to slip back into their Old Covenant practices. So Old Covenant, the sacrificing, the feasting, the worshiping in the same way that they should have in the Old Covenant, right? This is uh, one, of the things that the, one of the reasons that the book of Hebrews is actually written. Um, and they faced many challenges to their faith, right? Their Jewish neighbors would have disowned them for converting to Christianity, just shunned them, right? And their Gentile neighbors would have what? Ridiculed and mocked them, just like our culture does to us, right? We have some of that ridicule and mock today. I don't know if you guys have ever felt that, Um, but it's out there. And they needed to be overcomers, just like we do. Um, So the author of Hebrews writes this book to encourage them to press on in their faith and to hold fast to Christ, who is absolutely better than anything and everything else. So I want to read it one more time, and I actually have it on the screen. Um, Thanks, Juan, for reading it. I'm going to read it one more time, um, just so we can really get it. Um, And then we're going to start in verse 12. Here we go. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, so we're going to move to point one um, so you can flip through. I've got point one up there. Pass the, pass the passage here. I'm going to flip a couple more slides. All right, Uh, one more. Here's point one, okay? So, overcomers love and apply the word of God. That's point one. Overcomers love and apply the word of God. It's as simple as that. To be an overcomer, you must both love and apply the word of God. 
Now, no one raise your hands, but think about it. How many of you guys feel like you treat God's word like it's God's word? What I mean is, how many can honestly say that you treat the Bible like it's a love letter from the king of the universe? I mean, some of I don't know about you guys, but if I got a love letter from my girlfriend, I'd probably read it in every letter, and I would peruse it in a few times through, and just, you know, I'd probably put it up on the bulletin board or something like that. And we have really, in the Bible, we have 66 books that is written to give you God's love message, right? And I don't think a lot of us treat it like that. I know I'm guilty of not treating it like that. Um, And how many of you guys really carve out time each day to dive in and learn from Scripture? I mean, that's that's a pretty potent question because things get in the way, right? It's early, you get up, you come to school, you work hard, you go to sports, you get home, you're tired, you have homework. I mean, you can make all sorts of excuses, right? But the fact of the matter is, I mean, if we're Christians, those excuses don't really hold up. You know, and if we really love God, we should love his love letter. Does that make you guys understand what I'm saying by that? Um, okay, so verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. So we're going to stop. Have you guys ever considered how amazing the Bible is? You probably have, but I want to go through it again a little bit. So if you, ta- if you have a Bible, go ahead and hold it up, or just at least take a look at it. Look at it here. Um, the Bible, right? It's a collection of 66 books written by about 40 different authors, okay? Over 1,500 years, events spanning three continents, three different languages. But you know what's cool about the Bible? All those disparities, but it reads like one book. About who? One, one story, one message. Who's the guy that it's about? The whole thing. Anyone know? God. Jesus. God, I like that. Yeah, exactly. Right? The whole thing's not about Moses, right? The whole thing's not about Peter, it's not about anyone, but Jesus, the whole thing. And Jesus actually claims that for himself. Check Luke 24, okay? The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. It's pointing towards him. The whole New Testament is pointing back, right? It's very cool. Um, I think it's something else about the Bible is there's great evidence to believe that it's God's word. Prophetic, prophecy evidence, there's textual evidence, and then there's archaeological. There's three areas you can look at and say, wow. Scripture is what it claims to be. And if you guys want to know, if you're like questioning, because that's a really important question. Why do we trust the Bible? You can talk to me after. I can send you some really good stuff on that. Um, It's very good. And I'm sure your teachers here are giving you a lot on that. Um, Because that's a great question to ask, and a lot of people will have that for you. So you need to have a good answer on that. Um, But here's what I want to ask. What if we lose the word of God? Honestly, like just imagine right now that you live life, the Bible gets taken out. First of all, personally, what would that look like for you? Would that actually be a loss? for you guys. Um, I think that's important to think about. Um, but just in general, we can learn certain things in, from creation about God, right? How many know that? We can learn, by looking out our window, we can learn a few things about who God is, right? Um, we can learn he's very powerful, that he's a creator, but there's not like a ton of specifics we can learn just by looking out the window. And I would say think about it like a book. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, like huge um, and J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, right? So think about if you were a character in Lord of the Rings. Some of you guys probably have a favorite character. I hope it's Aragorn. He's my favorite character. Um, I don't know. You, ladies, do you have a favorite character in Lord of the Rings? Does anyone know Lord of the Rings well enough to know? Okay, we'll work on that. Good. You guys need to watch the movies at least. Um, okay, imagine you're a character in Lord of the Rings. I think it's just true that unless J.R.R. Tolkien wrote himself into Lord of the Rings... How could you possibly hope to know 
the author of the story, you know. He would have to take some action and make him know, himself known to you, right? Or else you, uh, you couldn't know much about the author. You might be able to pick up some general things from the way the story's written, but J.R.R. Tolkien, I mean, you couldn't in any meaningful way know him unless he first wrote himself into the story in some way to help you, right? Um, you see what I'm getting at? That in the world... To know God savingly, we need a little bit more than creation. We need something called special revelation, okay, which is the Bible. That just means that God specially revealed himself in Scripture. Um, We need the author of the story to break in, right, and speak directly to us about what he is like and what he requires of us, and that's exactly what the Bible is. I mean, it's pretty important, and it's pretty simple. So here's a big question for you. Again, do you treat the Bible like it's living and active word of God? I want you guys to think through that. And then if you don't, and if you're like, wow, I really don't treat it like that, what are some ways in your life right now, just think about it specifically, how can you move towards treating the Bible like it's God's word? Let's think that through. Um, Okay, let's keep going with the verse. This is some of my favorite parts here in the verse. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this is cool. The Word of God is described as being sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, I think that's just one of the coolest, potent metaphors in Scripture. I mean, it's a very cool thing. Um, The reason for this is that Scripture pierces where no physical sword can pierce, right? It pierces the soul and spirit, the inner man. It cuts and convicts us of our sin and prepares our hearts for the gospel. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we need Scripture to show us the error of our ways. I don't know if you guys knew that, but there's a verse in uh, First John, John that says, I would not have known sin except by the law of God. So we wouldn't know what lying is unless God had told us what lying was and said, don't lie. We wouldn't have known what murder was, right, unless God had said, don't murder. And that's what, that's what Scripture does, right? That's part of it, is it convicts us of our sin, and that's very important. Because do you know that if you go to the doctor's office and they tell you that you need to undergo this really excruciatingly painful treatment plan, maybe like chemotherapy, you're going to say, heck no, unless you know you have cancer, right? The cure doesn't make sense without the disease. You guys, does that, so you're not going to go through something like chemo unless you know that you have cancer, right? And that's kind of important. So that's another reason when, when you guys, I think, are going out and sharing the gospel with people, we need to make sure and not just skip over the bad news of sin because that makes the good news make sense. Does that, you guys follow me on that? If you skip the bad news, the good news, people are like, hey, you should, maybe you say to your friend, hey, you should become a Christian. Jesus is awesome. They say, well, why would I become a Christian? I don't need to do that. My life's already awesome, right? Well, that's missing the whole point, you know. They don't know that they have a problem. You guys see what I'm getting at? Okay, I went off track a little bit there, but I think that's cool. Um, All right, so, Here's a, here's a little analogy for you, okay? And I want to I drive home the piercing of the sword. C.S. Lewis fans, anyone? I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. Okay, excellent. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. No, Chronicles of Narnia? Everybody read that one? Good, okay. Um, Eustace is, it's like Eustace Clarence Shrub, and he almost deserved it, right? It's the, the cousin of, of the main characters, um, Edmund and Lucy, right, in that one? And uh, he's just like a horrible kid. He's like the worst of the worst of kids. He's selfish. Um, he's arrogant, you know. And the other thing about Eustace that's kind of interesting is um, I think the picture that we get from C.S. Lewis 
of Eustace, and what's cool is he actually is greedy, so he goes and takes this dragon's gold on this special, you have to read it, okay, but he basically gets turned into a dragon, okay, because of his greed. And there's a part in there where he tries to claw off this horrible dragon skin that's, like, constraining him. He just tries to, like, use his dragon claws to claw it off, and he can't make a dent. Like, he's just not able to get it off on his own. So he's, it's kind of a, a sad, it's, 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 it's hard for him. You know, he's trying to get it off. But nothing can get the dragon skin off, can actually free him from his dragon prison, except Aslan, which is, like, the Christ figure in Narnia. And Aslan has these powerful claws, and he says, you know, are you, do you want to be clean, basically? And Eustace says yes, and then Aslan goes, whoosh, whoosh, and just rips into Eustace. And Eustace says it like this. He says, when Aslan began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling it come off. I think that's kind of cool. But that's the kind of piercing that we're talking about here um, in this verse. So here's the deal. In our toughest times, I mentioned some tough times earlier, right? And some tough times you probably are going through. In our tough times, when we most need to be overcomers, we need the truth of Scripture. The problem is that the truth of the Bible doesn't somehow get to you by osmosis. Just because it's on your nightstand, you're not going to get Scripture. You can leave it on your nightstand your whole life, and you won't know the Bible, right? You actually have to pick it up and read it. We need to let the Word of God dwell richly in us, and I want to challenge you, if you are a Christian, we need to stop neglecting the Word of God. Let's be people marked by a love for the living and active Word. All right, point two is up next. Um, We're going to keep reading. Uh, I'm going to read verse 13 again. There is no creature hidden from his sight, that's God, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Okay, so point two. Overcomers are people of integrity, right? So what does integrity mean to you? Think about integrity, right? A lot of you might put that on your scholarship essay or, you know, if you're going to college, I don't know, who's the senior? Anyone? Okay, you're probably doing college stuff, right? And you say, you know, what's a quality that, you know, I might want to talk about it myself. Well, a lot of people say I'm integri- integrity is a good quality to have, right? But, you know, it's good to think about. So what does integrity mean? <clears throat> Would you describe yourself as a person of integrity? Um, and the question I think is a great question to ask is, do you live an integrated life? Coach Brown, uh, Ron Brown I talked about earlier, he says it like, do you live a life as an integer? right? An integer is a whole number for you math buffs out there. It's not a fraction. It's a whole number. So you, do you live a integer, integrated, integrity-based life, a whole life, right? And the way I would say that is, are you the same person in front of your coaches, your teachers, and your friends that you are at 2 a.m. in your bedroom? You know what I mean? Are you the same person when no one's watching as you are when everyone's watching, right? Am I the same person up here as I am when I get home tonight? that's integrity, I think. Um, And there's a popular FCA shirt, actually, that says, I play for an audience of one. Gordon, you've probably seen that shirt. Um, But interestingly enough, I was thinking about that at Weekend of Champions because I saw everybody had that shirt on. And I was like, you know, we don't just play for an audience of one, right? We do everything for an audience of one. Like, and obviously the audience of one is God. It's not just that God sees us on the court or field. Um, In fact, in your bedroom at night, when you open your browser you're doing that for an audience of one. When you're alone with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you're doing that for an audience of one. Um, And that even includes your thought life, actually, because Scripture says God looks at the inward parts. So, like, your thoughts. Man, all we can see is the outward parts of you. And some of us do a really good job of putting on a certain face, right? I don't know if you've heard Lecrae church clothes, um, but 
that's what he's getting at there, right? Um, but what I want to say is um, something someone helped me once with was if I connected my thoughts to a projector, am I comfortable with that? And I don't think any of us would be, right? Maybe even in the last 10 minutes. I don't want people like seeing my thoughts for the last 10 minutes. I don't know if you guys would. Um, but what about the last 24 hours, the last month, the highlight reel from the last month of our thought life, right? That's pretty serious stuff, but God is seeing that. Um, so the verse says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. And that includes us, both of us, right? You and me. No creature hidden from his sight, and all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And I just want to say, do you know how scary that is? I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that, but you are literally totally vulnerable before God. You cannot hide anything from him. You, you might want to, but you can't, right? Um, and I think before you can understand sin, really, and what sin actually is, you have to understand a little bit more about who God is, okay? Um, and King David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, and a lot more, right? He did a lot more than that. Um, after Nathan came and he was convicted, he repented, and then he wrote Psalm 51. So I'd like you guys to, at some point today, maybe, go read Psalm 51. You don't have to turn there now. But it's the, I think it's one of the best places to learn about what repentance is in the Bible. Um, and one thing he says in there is, he says, it's against you and you only have I sinned. He's talking to God. And I was, the first one I read that, I was like, what? David's like, I only sinned against God. No, no, no. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against a lot of people, right? But what he's getting at there is sin, first and foremost, is against God, right? It's primarily vertical. He definitely sinned against those other people, and, like, when I lie to someone, I'm sinning against them, but not nearly as, as primary and important as the fact that I'm sinning against God, my creator, right? So with every sin, we are storing up wrath for the, uh, of God for the day of wrath. And that's what Romans says about that. Um, and maybe some of you have said or heard someone say, you know, well, my God is a God of love. How many of you have heard that? My God is a God of love. My God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Maybe some of you guys have heard someone speak in those terms. Um, my dad would say, the fact is, they're right. Their God may be of God of love. Unfortunately, he doesn't exist. That's not the God that we find in Scripture. Um, the God they're describing is a figment of their imagination. Now, of course, the Bible, the God in Scripture is a God of love, but he's more than that. The God of the Bible is holy and righteous. He's just and good. And Paul Washer has said the scariest truth in all the Bible is that God is good. And uh, I was like, when, I, when he first heard that, I was like, What? That should be, that's not scary. Why is that scary that God is good? That, I wasn't scared by that. But then Paul Washer explained it. He said, this is because while God is good, we are not, right? <laughs> we're not good at all. Um, we're actually totally depraved and wicked. And the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are only evil. <clears throat> scripture says that about us. Um, and the, the thing is that the loving and just God of Scripture must punish the guilty and pour out his wrath on evil, or else he's not a good judge, Right? We, we're talking about Supreme Court a lot. Maybe you guys have seen that on Facebook and uh, Twitter and things. A lot about uh, Judge Gorsuch being nominated. Think about, if, would Judge Gorsuch even be close to that position if maybe as a judge he made a regular habit of seeing like a convicted rapist or a convicted criminal of some type? He's, you know, they were sitting there. They were convicted, clearly guilty. And at the end of the trial, he just said, you know what? I'm a good judge, and I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, you're good. You know, I'm, a, I'm a great judge. I'm going to let you off the hook. I'm a nice guy, you know. That's not a good judge at all, right? That's not a good judge. That's a terrible judge. And no one in America would stand for that. That's not justice, okay? So the fact that God is loving doesn't preclude the fact that he's just. Um, and he has to punish sin or else he's not just anymore. 
Um, right? So if you look at the verse and take an honest look at yourself, I think the question is, where does that leave you? Remember that he sees everything. He sees your thought life. Um, and all things are laid bare before his eyes. There's no hiding. Like I said, no dressing this up in church clothes. Um, so where's the hope for us, right? Where's the hope for anyone? How can we overcome our ledger, which is dripping red, I think? How can we stand before God? The God of the Bible says is holy, holy, holy. And the answer, we're going to keep reading. It's Jesus. Point three, overcomers hope in the great high priest. Um, Point three, this is really a great point. So verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Okay, so when your life falls apart, when you mess up, and when people die, you need to know that overcomers hope in the great high priest. If we are going to understand anything about this text, we actually need to understand what? Like what a high priest is, right? Um, I think in America today, when people hear the term high priest, if you just went out on the street and interviewed people, they'd probably think bishop, you know, Roman Catholic church, maybe the pope would come to mind as the high priest. But this is not what the Israelites would have thought of, okay? Um, so we're going to take a quick refresher here. So... Israel, the high priest. Um, how many have heard that Israel had a high priest? How many know the fact that there was a high priest in Israel? Did anyone know the first high priest, by chance? Aaron. Nice. Yes, Aaron. So Aaron was the first high priest, right? So what did the high priest of Israel do? Well, he was a representative of God's people, and he came before God. Actually, he came before him once a year on the Day of Atonement, and the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, uh, and would make a sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. Now, as most of you probably know, there's an actual country called Israel. It's like 17 and a half hours from here by travel. You could get there, right, in the Middle East. Actual country, and there's a city called Jerusalem. And on, in that city, still, there's a place called the Temple Mount, okay? And this is where the temple would have been. Now, it's not there anymore because it was destroyed in, I think, 70 A.D. by the Romans. But now, actually now, there's a mosque on top. If you see in a picture, you'll see a big golden dome. I don't know if you know if you've seen Jerusalem picture. But that's, that's not a, the temple. That, but it's very close to where the temple would have been back in Jesus' day. Okay? This is the temple we're talking about. So, uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, like I said, the high priest would pass through the outer courtyard. So the temple had three partitions. There's the outer courtyard which is the big courtyard that everyone can go in. Then there's the holy place, okay, so it's littler, it's inside. And then there's the next one, the Holy of Holies, which is where the God, the Ark of the Covenant was there. God's presence was there, right, on top of the Ark. Um, And that's once a year only, the high priest would go in there. So he would pass through the courtyard, the holy place, and then he would come into the Holy of Holies once a year, and he would come into God's presence and make a sacrifice uh, on behalf of the Israelites' sin, right? So, Atonement um, is one of those theological words we hear all the time. Remember, the high priest is trying to make atonement for the sins of the people, right? Um, And atonement really is something where you make up for a mistake or something that you failed to do or someone else failed to do. So in our case, the high priest would kill a goat, and that would atone or make up for the failings of the Israelites for that year. Now let's connect it, okay? When Jesus willingly went to the cross, he chose to subject himself to one of the most brutal forms of human punishment and torture and death ever conceived by mankind. He drank down the wrath of God for his people, and he did it as our high priest. Um, And we need to think about this. We need to connect this. I hope you saw some connections between the high priest of Israel and Jesus. Do you guys notice that? Because the high priest of Israel, we would say, is a type of Jesus. He's a shadow 
of what was to come in Jesus. And that's why I want you to read Hebrews, because you'll see some of that very cool ways in which Jesus appears in the Old Testament as types and shadows, right? But I want to go on, okay? So Jesus did that on behalf of his people for anyone who would repent or turn from their sin and trust in him. And then God uh, showed that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted by raising him from the dead. It's kind of a cool way to look at the resurrection, right? God accepted the sacrifice of Christ. Um, so let's look at back at verse 14 real quick. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Okay? Notice that, right? Who has passed through the heavens. So this is cool. After Jesus made that perfect final sacrifice, he passed through the heavens, just like the high priest passed through the three partitions. Very cool. And what did Jesus do after he uh, ascended into heaven and passed through the heavens? Do you know where he went? He didn't, right, he didn't just disappear into the ether. Um, do you guys have any, anyone have any ideas? You don't have to say it out loud, but I just want you to consider where is Jesus right now, right? Well, the Bible says he's actually, he went and sat down at the right hand of God. And if you know anything about kings and ancient rulers, the king's right hand, that's what? That's a position of major power and influence. The first position, right, next to the king on the throne. Jesus sat down there, and 1 John 2 says, he's there today, and he's advocating before the Father for you and me and our sins. That's pretty exciting stuff, right? That we have our great high priest in the first position next to God the Father, and he's being an advocate for us, if we're Christians, of our sin. Um, and he's advocating for us and saying his sacrifice already paid and atoned. It's very, very encouraging stuff. Um, okay, so moving to verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Okay, for me, this is the one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. Very comforting. And can you see why you need to know this in tough times? Like some of those tough times we brought up earlier, can you see where this verse really comes into play and should encourage you? It's because Jesus gets it. Whatever you're going through, he gets it. Whatever you're going to go through, he gets it. He knows what you're going through. He understands the temptations you're facing because he went through them too. Look at the verse. He can sympathize because he has walked in your shoes. Right? I don't know if you read To Kill a Mockingbird yet in high school. It's one of my favorite books. But Atticus says, get out of your shoes and walk in their shoes. Right? Um, and that's what Jesus did for us. He was human. He experienced the same emotions as we do. He cried. Shortest verse in scripture. Some of you, you know, Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. You guys know that verse? It's a good one if someone's like, do you know any scripture? Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. It's a good one. Um, right? But, there's a great theology piece in that verse, right? Our Lord Jesus cried. That's a human emotion. He, was, he experienced grief like we do, right? Um, pain is not a human convention to Jesus. He understood it. He's intimately familiar with it. Um, and whatever you're going through right now, he gets it. Um, and there's one all-important difference, though, with Jesus. Can you guys see it in the verse? Uh, verse 15, there's one all-important difference between us and Jesus. It says, although he is tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He never for one moment failed to love God with every thought, word, and deed. He never failed to love his neighbor as himself. I don't know a time when I haven't failed. I mean, but Jesus didn't. And that's our high priest. That's who's sitting at the right hand of God. And his sacrifice on your behalf is the gospel. And that's very exciting. All right, last verse. Here we go. Verse 16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So like I said, most ancient rulers were absolutely unapproachable. 
by anyone but like the most powerful, the highest members of their court. Um, but this is very, is radical that this verse says we should approach the throne of God who is infinitely greater than any of the ancient rulers with confidence, that we should stride into his presence with a confident stride. Um, and why, right? Because of the work done by Jesus, our high priest. And that's a magnificent truth. Um, can you go to the next slide, please? Uh, there's actually a quote from Martin Luther that I think sums this up super well. Um, it's the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation anniversary. Uh, Martin Luther, 1517, nailed the 95 Theses to the door, right? You guys know that. Um, but he's also an amazing theologian, and one quote that he gave that I love is this. It says, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is there shall I be also. That's how you overcome. You believe the gospel. You trust Jesus. And I want you guys to think about a parachute for a second. Because some people think, you know, okay, believe, what does that really mean? You know, I like the word trust, personally. But I think some people just reduce believe down to something that goes on in your mind, like an intellectual assent to a fact. Just like you believe that 2 plus 2 is 4, right? But I think it's much more than that, okay? And the way I want to think about it is a parachute. If you're on a plane and you get the warning sign and the, co the co-pilot comes on, hey, you know, we're experiencing some engine trouble, we're going to need to make an uh, emergency jump out of the plane, it's going to go down and crash. Okay, there's a parachute under your seat, right? Now, let's just pretend that you for a second say, well, I believe that that parachute exists, so I'm good to go. I'm just going to jump out of this plane right now because I believe it's under my chair. You know, what does that get you? Nothing, right? You'll probably go splat unless you land in a lake, okay? But what's different than that, okay? Let's just say that then you believe it exists, but then you take it out, and what do you do? You put it on, right? And you trust your life to it. I think it's a good analogy. That's what I'm getting at, okay? There's a difference between just an intellectual something that happens in the mind and a trusting of taking your whole life and saying, I'm not going to keep anything for myself. I'm not going to keep anything back. I'm going to trust Jesus with everything I have. That's the kind of trust and belief that the scripture says is what a relationship with Christ looks like. Um, and how do you know that you've truly believed, right? Like some people say, well, how do you know that you know that you know? <laughs> you know, how do you really know that you believe? Um, it's not because you prayed a prayer when you were five. That's not in scripture. Um, it's not because you had an emotional high at a Christian retreat. Um, although that's, Christian retreats are great. I love Christian retreats, and I've had some of the best retreats. But that's not how you know you're saved. Um, the way you know that you've repented and believed is that you are continuing to repent and believe, even till this moment, right? Pointing back to a time when you were five, or pointing back to an emotional high, is not how you know you're a Christian. The way you know you're a Christian is you look at your life now, and you say, am I repenting? and believing the gospel, even as I did back then, and even unto this moment, right? So I want you guys to examine your own heart and ask yourselves, this is you. What do you desire? That's a great way to know. If God has worked in your heart, he has changed it. You desire him. If you desire the things of this world and not God, I would take that as evidence that you may not be a Christian. I don't know for sure, okay? But the Bible says examine ourselves, right? And like I said, if you desire God, then... God may have changed your heart. And that's because I think we all, the way we are is we desire sin, right, naturally. <clears throat> we desire the things of the world. And we hate the things of God. When God works in your heart, 
He changes that. So you desire the things of God, and you desire God, and you hate the things of this world. That's what the gospel does in your heart, okay? And if it hasn't happened to you, then consider that. Consider that as saying, wow, I need to take a look at my life, and maybe I need to cry out to God. You know, I need to search the scriptures. Um, that's where I would go. Um, but if you are in Christ, then you know that in the toughest times, overcomers hope in their great high priest. And that, to me, that's a very big encouragement. So just a quick review uh, to close. Today we've been talking about overcoming. We had talked about how overcomers love and obey the word of God, right? That was the first point. And this is just true, I think. Um, you will not know God without knowing richly about him. And Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of God dwell in you richly, right? So if you want to know God, it's kind of like I heard an analogy once by a guy named Greg Kokel, and he said, you know, let's just say uh, one of these guys becomes interested in one of these uh, beautiful young women, and he says, hey, you know, let's, we should date or something. And, uh, you know, you said, well, let's go to coffee, well, one of you girls. You're like, well, coffee's a great way to get to know somebody, right? You guys, you know, whoever you drink coffee, you're like, I want to go to coffee with a guy and get to know him. And the guy says, no, I don't want to know about you, okay? I just want to know you, right? The girl will be like, what? No way, I'm not, that's horrible. No, because knowing about someone, if you really want to have a relationship with them, right, what do you need to do? You need to know about them to know them. And any relationship, I would argue, any great relationship in your life, any deep one, you know a lot about the other person. So anyway, that's an analogy. All right, uh, we also talked about how overcomers live lives of integrity, integrated lives. Remember the integer, whole numbers, right? So the same people at 2 a.m. in their bedroom as they are at 4 p.m. at basketball practice. That's a tough one, right? I was in high school. Gordon said, I played basketball. Not well. I took charges a lot. That was my thing, charges. Um, but if your life and your worldview are going to stand up to the toughest tests of the devil, you need to be integrated. Your life needs to be a life of integrity. Because where there's no integrity and there's cracks, the devil is going to go right in there and it's going to burst, and everything is going to fall. So integrity is very important as Christians. Um, and I'm talking to myself as well. That's something that I continue to look at for myself. Um, but we must examine ourselves to see if there's anything in our lives that we are keeping from God. Any sin that we do a great job of hiding from everyone except our audience of one, right? Because there's some sins that are easier to hide than others, I think. You guys know that that's true? That there are certain sins that people struggle with that are much easier to hide than others? Um, those are not easy to hide from God because you can't hide anything from him, right? And so when you find sin in your life, we need to cast it from ourselves and throw ourselves at the mercy of God, right? Um, so overcomers are people of integrity. And finally, we talked about how overcomers hope in the great high priest. Jesus was made to be the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. As our sympathetic high priest, Jesus is representing us before God, and he isn't in heaven with his lip curled up at your struggles saying, hey, you need to do better, right? He's saying, I understand, I've been there. I know how you feel, and he understands and he cares, and I think that's really good news. So thanks for listening. I appreciate it. It was early. You guys stuck with me. Uh, I'm going to pray right now, and then I think we're going to have some discussion, so we can put that on the screen after we're done praying. Father, thank you so much uh, for this morning and for each and every person that's here. Um, Lord, I thank you for your word, which guides us and is so important to us in the toughest times of life. And I ask that you'd light a fire in uh, many here, uh, many young people here would just say, wow, I want to devote my life to knowing your word, Lord, and that you would um, give them the energy to do that um, and help them and bring people around them that are doing the same to encourage them um, because that, your truth is really uh, all we have to hang on to in this world, Lord. There's so many lies, and I pray that you'd protect these uh, men and women from those lies uh, through your word and the power of the gospel.
Um, I thank you for Christ and his work as our high priest and his continual work. Um, and I ask that that would encourage us and that we would know that he understands what we're going through. And the toughest times of life, Lord, are the times that we need to press most into the gospel and preach it to ourselves and to understand that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Um, and thank you so much for this morning. I ask for each person in here just a great day of loving you and working hard in school. And I thank you for the opportunity to speak today. In Jesus' name, amen.